In 2018, director Brian Singer and star Rami Malek gave the world a biopic that sizzles and pops, but lacks any real substance. Oh, shots fired, Brad. <laughs> I like it. In 2020, Beam Suntory gives us a familiar brand, but kicks things up a notch. The film is Bohemian Rhapsody. The whiskey is Old Overholt 114. And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. And I oppose of calling this a classic movie. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to, we're going to put an asterisk next to that one, Brad. <laughs> but yeah, this is Brad G. Uh, we are so excited today um, not to talk about the movie, although we'll get to that. We're really excited because we're drinking a really awesome new whiskey. But more importantly than that, Bob, we have a great friend of show here with us. Why don't you introduce him? Yeah, so we have brought on our friend Chris Blattner, known as the Urban Bourbonist on Instagram. Chris is one of our oldest friends in the world of whiskey and one of our very first listeners. I can't believe we haven't had him on yet. Uh, but Chris, it's so good to have you here. Thanks for being with us today. Well, Brad and Bob, thank you very much for having me. Um, I am a fan of the show and, and have been for a long time. I continually say like you guys can break down a movie like nobody else and and talk about it and uh, so it's exciting to be here and and to drink whiskey with you guys and to hear how you guys are going to break down uh, <laughs> bohemian rhapsody so it, it should be a fun a really fun time yeah we're we're excited to have you along for the ride this episode, everybody, was actually intended to be part of our Bad Movie Bonus series. If that tells you anything about where this episode is going, we reached out to Chris and said, hey, jump on this bonus episode with us. We're going to drink Old Overholt together, uh, which is a whiskey with a kind of very limited distribution right now. And then we had a little bit of a snafu, as you heard about, with our programming change a couple weeks ago. And so we decided to make up for it by bumping Bohemian Rhapsody up into a regular weekly episode. And that's kind of the rub here, Brad, you're talking about how you don't know if this is a classic movie. I agree. I mean, it's only two years old. And yet at the same time, it was nominated for Best Picture and it won Best Actor and it made a billion dollars at the worldwide box office. It's the highest grossing biopic of any kind of biopic in the history of the world. So, you know, in a sense, I kind of feel like we may not like the movie, but it's definitely a worthy candidate to be talked about on this show. Well, I think that the reason it has hit such amazing numbers is the I think it's really just an enduring testament to the power of Freddie Mercury. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, th I think we can all start this episode by saying Freddie Mercury is one of the greatest superstars that has ever graced the musical genre. Like the dude was spectacular. Queen is one of the greatest bands ever to live. And I, I know, Chris, Bob, are you with me on that at the very least? Oh, for sure. Uh, a huge, huge Queen fan. I mean, just just one of those bands that kind of no matter when you grew up, um, it just kind of transcends. You know, it's one of those bands like everyone knows songs from Queen. And and Brad, you had said that that Freddie is like one of the best 
ever. And I, I think he, I would, I would say he's the best front man probably ever of a rock yeah. group. I mean, there's a lot of really great ones out there, but is anyone really better than Freddie Mercury? I would say no. I'm not really sure that there is. And th- he's actually one of the people uh, I have like an icebreaker question that, you know, you, you always need to have in your back pocket. That is, if you could choose any singing voice to be your singing voice, who would you choose? And my number one wow. answer is always mm. Freddie Mercury. His voice is just unbelievable. Yeah, and it's so rare to find somebody with that much of a powerhouse voice. You know, as he got older, before he passed away tragically from AIDS, he actually branched out and was doing opera for a while. Like He had his hand in so many different things, and it's because he had this incredible talent. And guys, if we can transition into the movie a little bit here, I'm going to say it like this. I don't think Freddie Mercury would feel incredibly honored by what they did with his memory in this film. Like, this is the most paint-by-numbers, cliche-ridden, horribly written, over-the-top acted, sloppily directed musical biopic <laughs> I can think of. Like, there, there's, tell, tell there, us how you really feel, I'm just Bob. saying, like, there's probably <laughs> been five or six biopics from the music genre that came out in the last few years. And I would pick any of them over this just as a film. And it really blows my mind that this is the one that everyone latched onto, and and not only that they went to see it, because I can understand it having like a big opening weekend, getting a lot of you know early box office, but this thing blew up. It just kept growing and kept growing, which tells me that something in this movie like struck a chord with the general population. And you know, Brad, as a guy who really loves movies and really wants people to watch good movies, it's kind of concerning to me because. I think that the cliches are so obvious, that the manipulation is so obvious. See, here's the thing, though, Bob. Like, we talked about Walk the Line just a few weeks ago, and we basically said this is a paint-by-numbers biopic, Mm -hmm. and we loved it. I I think we gave it around a nine, nine and a half, eight and a half, somewhere in that upper echelon of movies. And I I just look at it and I go, okay, well, if that was a paint-by-numbers biopic, but we really loved it. What was the difference between that and this? I think that's a really fair point. But and I was thinking about this, too. I think that there's moments in Walk the Line where they actually write a full scene, like like the scene where Reese Witherspoon and Joaquin Phoenix are in that diner and they're first getting to know each other. She's asking him questions about the toll that the road is taking on him. This movie, like they, they don't even have full scenes of dialogue. It's just like they'll cut to a scene specifically so that a character can say one thing and then they'll cut right to the next scene. And it's almost like they're not even trying to develop the characters in the movie. It's just like, we need the audience to know this thing. So let's insert 15 seconds of somebody saying that thing. And then we'll go to the next scene. I think a good illustration of what you just said is like when they sort of hint at how some of the more popular songs that queen has come to be known for how they sort of arrived at that song. Like they didn't even go into like create, like even touch on creative process. No. Like, you know, they, they like, we will rock you. They just show them clapping their hands a couple times and stomping their feet. And that was like the, the extent of the creative process for that particular song, which has become like this song that, Seriously, everyone knows that song that's listened to music. 
And it, it would have been nice to see like a little bit of like what really went into that particular song or any of the huge queen hits, like how they actually came to be. And they kind of just really glossed over all of that incredibly. Well, the most you ever get is when Roger Taylor is writing a song about his car and they yell at him for it. And and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there you go. There's the creative process. So I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole here because I, I want to restrain myself from just dumping on the movie. And I want to try to explain why I think it's a bad movie. But in order for us to get to that point, Brad, we need you to break down this film. So it's time for our favorite segment, America's favorite segment. Brad explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the film that he has just seen often for the first time. Brad, was this your first time seeing Bohemian Rhapsody? It definitely was, Bob. (laughs) Sounds like it was a momentous occasion for you. Uh, So, Brad, can you break down for our audience the plot of the movie Bohemian Rhapsody? Yeah, so at the start of the movie, we have a young Farak Bolsara who is living with his parents. He's working at Heathrow, throwing luggage around, and he follows a few bands. And he goes and finds the proto version of Queen hanging out, doing a doing a gig, doing their thing. You know what I mean? And uh, he he sings a few notes at him because their their original singer left, and they go, "Oh man, we're gonna harmonize to that," and then. And then we're going to be superstars two seconds later. And then and then through the rest of the movie, they become more and more superstars. And they have this dude who says, uh, no, I don't want you to do Bohemian Rhapsody. I want you to do this song about a car and its tailpipe. And uh, (laughs) and they say, you lost us, man. You're going to be the man who's known for losing uh, Queen. And and that was kind of a setback, I guess. And so Freddie uh, turns out that he's gay uh, and that like plays a big role in the movie and his life. And he he kind of breaks up with the band and then he gets back together for a Live Aid performance to help Ethiopia. And and yeah, other stuff happens, but I can't really remember it. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Brad, you've explained the film. (laughs) Here's the reason you can't understand any of it, Brad, or you can't remember any of it, Brad, is because this movie is a filmed version of a Wikipedia article. Like the more, <laughs> the more I think about it, the more it's it's you know I keep going back to that lesson we learned uh, from Trey Parker and Matt Stone uh, from South Park, where they talk about how to build the plot of an episode or of a movie, and how each plot element basically needs to happen and then have either. This happens, so this happens, or this happens, but then this happens, and, and a complication arises. This movie is literally just, this happens, and this happens, and this happens, and there's there's no heft, there's no weight to anybody's decisions, it feels like, throughout the film. They literally are just including things for fan service. You know, the We Will Rock You number that Chris was talking about earlier is is so eye-rollingly bad for me, because... The way that they frame it in the movie, too, is like these guys are hanging out in the studio and they literally say to each other, we need to give back to the fans, man. They've given so much to us. Let's give something to them. And this movie, like it has the fingerprints of the surviving members of Queen all over it. And I think one of my biggest frustrations is that you can tell when the creative process is being tampered with. And I really do feel badly for the writers of this film because Queen was so intensely involved in the making of this movie 
they heavily guarded, you know, their story, selling their rights. Uh, originally, this movie had been in talks about 10 years ago uh, with Sasha Baron Cohen to star as Freddie Mercury, and uh, which is something that I think is just cool to imagine anyway. But they had such a huge falling out because Sasha Baron Cohen was saying, we need to make this an edgier movie. Freddie obviously lived a very edgy life. We can't sanitize everything. And Queen very much disagreed with that. And I think the product that we get at the end of the day is something that so clearly presents most of the members of Queen as people who can do no wrong. And it really takes any edge or any bite out of this movie. It's just a very... It seems sanitized even watching it, if that makes sense. Well, and with with that edge taken out of it, like you said, Bob, I think that the main problem for me with this movie is that none of it is believable. Mm -mm. Like, even when it comes down to the color palette of this movie, and this might be getting into the weeds, but everything about this movie is, like, so bright that it doesn't even feel like it's representing real life. No. Like the scenes all feel like they're almost CGI. The 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 actors feel like they are CGI. Like so much of this movie just felt too shiny and too poppy and like I it just it just left a sour taste in my mouth that I was like none of this feels real. And and I think going back to my comparison to Walk the Line there was something rugged and real about Walk the Line. Like when you watched him growing up and fishing and finding out about his brother's accident, like all of it felt grounded and real and raw. Nothing about this movie felt Mm-mm. very real or raw. No, it it felt uh, it definitely felt like it was glossed over. It it felt like they just tried to like Bob had alluded to that they just tried to hit these little points throughout their career that that they wanted to highlight and and sort of for no reason you know it was just we want to say these few things and we want to fit them in and they didn't even really figure out a good way how to fit in everything they wanted to say and bob you also mentioned i think this movie had all sorts of problems from from the get go because um of the issues with acting, they replaced the director like halfway through through the movie, yeah. and I think it just shows how the movie reflects that. It's kind of just sloppy. It's super sloppy movie, and the director of this movie was Brian Singer, um, who has become embroiled in a huge scandal uh, of pedophilia, and he was actually the director of the movie The Usual Suspects, which we had scheduled to talk about this season. But the the sort of uh, intersection between Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey being in the same movie, we just didn't want to talk about that movie right now. And he cropped up again here. He filmed most of the movie before becoming replaced. And uh, from what I've read online, he was responsible for the recreation of the Live Aid performance at the end of the movie, too, which incidentally is, I think, the strongest directed part of this whole movie. The ending of this film actually brought the movie up a couple notches in my book. Because the first, you know, three-fourths of it were so, so bad. But you're right, Chris. I, I really do think that everything just seems kind of like a mess. There's there's no forward momentum to the movie. There's nothing tying one scene to the next. I feel like uh, parts of it looked like they were rushed because you can tell, like, I'm not usually the guy that notices bad wigs on people in movies. But <laughs> but the whole first half of the movie before Freddie gets short hair and a mustache 
every member of Queen has the worst wigs I've ever seen in a movie. And and like it like like low budget movie levels of wigs. They were they were horrendously bad. And I think that's one of the things that's like so frustrating to me is like the wigs are bad. Freddie's teeth are terrible. Like Rami Malek can barely even talk through those teeth. The makeup is bad. Like it's just there's parts of this movie that are so amateurish that I just can't wrap my mind around it. Yeah, I'd agree. I I actually think that when you talked about uh, the Freddie's teeth and Rami Malek, they like so over exaggerated. Obviously, Freddie Mercury is known for that overbite. Mm-hmm. And but like Rami Malek could barely close his mouth. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was it was just it was almost cartoonish. Well, and, and I noticed it especially, too, with I think I mentioned the makeup a second ago, but like they keep aging Freddie Mercury's parents to the point where like the makeup is like their their faces are immovable. They look like they've been mummified and like they, they start aging them right from the beginning. And poor Freddie Mercury's mom wearing this terrible wig, this awful, you know, it looks like the kind of age makeup you put like that they would put on you when you were doing like high school musicals. Like they put, they drew the lines, the age lines in her cheeks and stuff. I looked it up after the movie was over. The woman who played Freddie Mercury's mom was 42 years old and they made her up (laughs) that much. At some point you just have to ask like, why don't they just hire a 55 year old person to play this role and age them from 55 to 70 or whatever it was. Like, why are you taking a young person and continually applying this terrible makeup to them? Well, I, I think Chris really hit the nail on the head when he described it as cartoonish. The The movie just continually portrays Freddie with every single over-the-top stereotype that has ever been applied mm-hmm. to Freddie. And, and it just feels like somebody off the street, they ask somebody off the street, like, Hey, you, you've heard of Freddie Mercury. What do you think about him? And the guy was like, oh, yeah, he's like really over the top. He does everything kind of crazy. And that's that. And so they use that to do everything about him, like his overbite, his sexual preference, the the way he carries himself with people, just everything about him in this movie is so cartoonish, over the top, ridiculous yeah. that. Well, but here's the thing, Brad, like it's over the top and cartoonish and yet none of it rings true to who Freddie Mercury was. Like if you've actually watched Freddie on stage, he did bring this. Like He was a very slender, slight man, but he brought this raw masculine energy to the way that he performed on stage. And I don't think Rami Malek captures that at all. He definitely captures the sort of sensitivity uh, of Freddie and the insecurities but even in the Live Aid performance, he does a really good job of imitating, you know, Freddie's motions. But I just never got the sense of that sort of masculinity that he brought to his singing. And I think that it carries over to the rest of the film. We talked about how it seems so sanitized. This movie was so sanitized, in fact, that they were able to screen this movie in China and only cut, I think, two minutes out of the movie. And China is, you know, famously one of the most repressive restrictive markets, you know, anything that smacks of a homosexual relationship, like the censors come down hard. And I think it says a lot about this movie that Freddie Mercury, this hugely debaucherous sex, drugs and rock and roll figure has been portrayed so tamely that all they had to do was cut two minutes out of the movie and they could screen it in the most restrictive movie viewing area of the world. 
Is it bad that I kind of wish that I had seen the Chinese cut? Because then that means I would have had to spend two less minutes watching this movie. <laughs> uh, it's, it's That's not a bad point. But, you know, I, I do think that's a huge... That's the, the biggest miss of this movie is how they... They almost vilified Freddy's sexual preference in this movie. Um, and, and they didn't, you know when they portray his actual romantic relationships in, in this movie, they actually portray his relationship with Mary um, more than anything else in the entire movie. They just barely allude to, you know, him being gay. Yeah. Um, I mean, they obviously, it's part of the movie, but they kind of just wash over it. And I feel like they somewhat vilify it and say, you know, Freddie was going down the wrong path. I think especially that scene where he throws the party at the mansion and, and the rest of the band members come and they're, and they're all married and, and they, they kind of say, this isn't our scene mm. anymore, Freddie. And they, they sort of, I feel like they vilify his lifestyle and they vilify his flamboyance yeah. in, in, in that particular scene of the movie and like he's going down the wrong path and like the other three band members have. Oh, they're totally fine. They're down. on the straight and narrow. Yeah. And like even yeah. the way they confront him, like Brian May just stands up and like taps Freddie on the shoulder and he's like, you know, sometimes you can be really mean. And then they walk away. Yeah. Like the, like the other band members do nothing wrong in this whole film. And, and the funny thing, Chris, like you're talking about this scene where he's having this like debaucherous party. I actually laughed out loud at that scene because Freddy's like, we're going to throw a party. We're going to bring in dwarfs. It's going to be crazy. And I'm, I'm expecting like the Wolf of Wall Street, you know, and then they cut to the scene and it's just people standing around nicely, like having a, a, a toast of champagne. Yeah. Like the most <laughs> debaucherous they get is people be like Freddy walks into the party and everyone goes, woo. And, and that's the extent of this crazy party. And it's so crazy that the other members of Queen can't even be there. They feel so uncomfortable. I'm like, this looks like a dinner party. Like, there's nothing crazy <laughs> about this. Yeah. Bob, I think you bring up a great point. I would love to see a Scorsese-directed Queen biopic. Oh, oh yeah. Man. Oh, that's a great point. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there'd be enough Catholic guilt in there? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. You know, Chris, I wanted to talk really briefly about something that you were alluding to, and that was uh, the character of Mary, who is Freddie Mercury's wife, who, you know, they she then finds out that he's gay and they get a divorce. And I felt like that was a huge missed opportunity in some ways, too. And I think this is where the, the kind of Disneyfication of things really comes into play because they make Mary a very understanding person. And I think by all accounts, she was. But there's no sense of the struggle that she has with his homosexuality. Um, there's there's really no grappling for Freddie with his sexuality at all. Like he he a little bit alludes to it. And there's that scene where he feels tempted by that guy in the truck stop. But Freddie Mercury was gay at a time when it was really not okay to be gay in many, many parts of the world. And I think yeah. that to honestly and accurately portray his struggle with that and the responses to it would have made this movie so much better. But they they turn Mary into this really fakely progressive person who who she seems like a character that would be in a 2020 movie or a 2018, you know, time frame where she's so openly accepting. 
that there's no there's no struggle at all. He's like, hey, we need to get a divorce because I'm gay. And she's like, all right, you know, life's going to be hard for you, but I understand. And well, it, it was just there was like there was no dramatic tension to that decision at all. Zero. Yeah. The, the way that she delivers a line where she basically says because he tells her, you know, I think I'm bisexual. And she goes, you're gay, Freddie. And you can't, she says something to the effect of like, you can't even control it or or you were born that way or, yeah, and like just leaves it at that. And it just feels so, I don't know. It feels like it was just doused in hand sanitizer. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it just feels direct of any real conflict or frustration because I don't know. It's a weird thing. It's like we want people to be loving and caring and accepting you know, for anybody, wherever they're at in their life. But at the same time, to make a good movie, I feel like it's okay to say, hey, man, this is the 80s. 95 to 99% of the world wasn't okay with this. And I kind of doubt that Mary just had this, well, this is just who you are and I'm a little bit sad about it, but but we'll get over it. Well, and Brad, on that note, and right before we go to break here, I want to say that the reason that I'm grappling with what to criticize and what not to is because let's just say for a second that that is exactly how that conversation with Mary went. Okay, like maybe it was maybe she was that accepting and that open. The problem with this movie is that if you do any sort of research on it, I would say a solid 50 to 60 percent of this movie is completely made up, like just didn't happen. You have composite characters all over the place where. You know, people from the real world in Queen's life are composited into one person to kind of save time and save space developing characters. Uh, the Mike Myers character never, oh. never existed. He's not a real person. And, <laughs> and, and which makes me even more upset that Mike Myers is even in the movie because I feel like they literally only got him in this movie to say that one stupid line about the Bohemian Rhapsody song where he says, this will never be the song that teenagers bang their heads to in a car. What about I'm in love with my car? You're joking. Jesus. I love that. Well, that's the kind of song teenagers can crank up the volume in their car and bang their heads to. Bohemian Rhapsody will never be that song. And I literally felt, I thought he was going to turn to the camera and just wink and break the fourth wall. Because it's like such this obvious reference to Wayne's World. Yes. That I was like, did you really put that in the final edit of this movie like there's so many things like that that, you know and and i think the most egregious of them is this idea of freddie's diagnosis with aids uh prior to the live aid performance when in reality freddie wasn't even diagnosed with aids until two years after the live aid performance and didn't die for like another three or four years after that and i think it's like they, they they didn't know where to go with this movie they didn't know how to give it any sort of dramatic tension or something to build to. And they were like, well, you know, Queen did a really good job at Live Aid, so why don't we just build to that? And in order to build to that, they just concoct all these fake dramatic beats so that we walk out on this really triumphant note of them at Live Aid. And like, you know, do I expect 100% authenticity from movies like this? No, I don't. But I think that this is one of those movies where even if you don't know every detail of the timeline of Queen, you can kind of tell something's off. Like they did such a shoddy job with it that you can kind of tell they're fudging, you know, the the facts of the matter. 
but Bob, it's okay because because they play Queen music and we all love that. <laughs> and I will say, the best part about watching this movie was the fact that man, I I got to listen to some good Queen songs and I liked that. Yeah, I think the best part of the I think the best part of the movie is just being able to watch along and and hear hear those songs as as they're played during the movie. Um, we can get into Rami Malek's performance later on, but yeah, I, I agree with you, um, Brad, like that's, that's really the highlight of this movie and probably why it was so popular. Yeah. But which also kind of begs the question, like, why don't we just listen to a queen album instead of (laughs) of watching this movie? Well, I, I think that the highlight of this episode might not be the movie, but I've given this thing a few noses. I think this old overhaul 114 may just be the best part of this episode. What say you guys? Let's get into it. Let's do it. For sure. So today we are checking out Old Overholt 114. Now, Brad, I don't know if you remember this, but Old Overholt was one of the first, I'd say, six to ten whiskeys we ever tried on this podcast. It is a staple uh, of bars across America. It is the well rye for a lot and a lot of bars. We actually had the 80 proof version in season one. We've never gotten around to trying the 100 proof, the bonded version, which a lot of people really, really liked. This is a bottom shelf fixture uh, from the Jim Beam Corporation, Beam Suntory. And now what they've decided to do, Jim Beam's kind of expanding their portfolio like across the board. And they took this brand old Overholt. They said, we're going to kind of inject it with some new life. And so the the regular old Overholt has been upgraded uh, to have a three-year age statement on it now. And I've seen some people online talking about how they can taste the difference even in that, that standard 80 proof version. But they also decided they were going to add a couple different expressions to the old Overholt brand. And the first one that they've come out with is this old Overholt 114, uh, which is, you know, something that Jim Beam likes to do. If you remember uh, a couple months ago, we tried old granddad 114. That's also a Jim Beam product. Later this year, they're planning on coming out with an old Overholt 11 year age statement. uh, And that one's actually going to be pretty pricey compared to this. But from what I can tell online... I thought this was going to be a nationwide release, and Jim Beam has only made this available in Ohio and Pennsylvania, and I think maybe Kentucky, but I'm not sure on that. So this has been a very regional release. We're lucky enough to get it here in Ohio. Guys, I mean, Brad, do you remember anything about the old Overholt that we drank, you know, almost two years ago now? Honestly, Bob, I don't. I, I think that early on, it was one of those rides where I was kind of like, huh, Rise are interesting. I might like these. <laughs> and now here I am a few years later, and I really love rye. Um, but I don't remember a ton from the 80 proof way back in the day, Bob. Chris, what's your history been like with Old Overholt? So I'm a huge Jim Beam fan. Um, there, I, I don't hide that in any way. In fact, I celebrate that. Um, 
something about Jim Beam products just matches my palate pretty much perfectly. I, for me, they pretty much can't do any wrong. So I, I like I like the old Overholt line, and, and in fact, they they kind of started an overhaul of this a couple of years ago with the with the uh, 100 proof. I think the uh, it's bottled in bond. I think that one came out in 2018, and that was sort of like the first kind of reimagining of this brand, taking the 80 proof, upping it to 100 proof. They they did uh, non-chill filtering to it, so they didn't uh, they didn't chill filter. And then after that, they released an 86 proof that was non-chill filtered. And that's going to, I think it has replaced the 80 proof. Mm. So the 80 proof is, is going to be no more. And so the bottom level of the old Overholt lineup will be that 86 proof, non-chill filtered. Then you have the 100 proof. And then now you have this, this, this 114. And I, I truly find it to be a really excellent product. And this is like Jim, Be- Jim Beam, like flexing their muscle, showing like what they are able to do. And um, I-, I can just imagine what, what the 11 year is going to be like. It- it's just one of those whiskeys that kind of has changed, I think has kind of changed the game for rye whiskey, especially at this price point. When Jim Beam comes out and they deliver a, a 114 proof rye for $29.99, that's a major, major flex. Oh, I totally agree. And I, I, I'm getting a sense of where Chris might go with his scores on this. Um, but before <laughs> we get into to drinking it, I, I just want to say what I remember about Old Overhold and what I find to be true with this 114 is that it's a really good gateway into rye. Like, it's not super rye heavy on the nose, on the taste, on the finish. It doesn't have that sort of souring effect. You don't get the, the either the, the dill pickle that you get with some rye or the mint that you get with other ryes. It's very, it's a very bourbon-y rye, and it's really subtle, and it's really soft. It's great for a mixer. It's great to try, you know, on the rocks or neat if you're not a huge rye drinker. And that's what I loved about the 80 proof. Uh, so let's see if they can kind of capture that same magic here with the 114, guys. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose? Well, Bob, while you were talking for 97 minutes, I I had a little bit of time to come up with what I wanted to say, and I think I nailed it. This, to me, smells like a nutty cream soda, Hmm. and it is spectacular. Yeah, I definitely get some of those, like, almost like a cola kind of scent to this, and I, I feel like that note's been coming up a lot in our last few weeks, Brad, but it's, there's that really great oh shoot what's that i can't even place the uh bananas foster no stop it peanut butter there's that really great almost like root beer sarsaparilla kind of note going on in here but it is undercut with some of that like raw rye grain so it's got some spice to it as well i think that's a really great note that you're getting on the nose there brad oh man thanks bob (laughs) let's be honest though chris is the real expert here so uh, let's let's hear it, Chris. What are you getting on the nose? No, I I totally agree with with both of you. Like I get I get all of those notes that you guys are talking about. There is a there's a nuttiness that is always present for me and Jim Beam, and it's usually it's usually peanut, 
But in this, it's not it's not a in-your-face kind of peanut note. It's a nuttiness. I don't know if I can put my finger on the exact type of nut, but there's a nuttiness to it. There is a bit of like a, a sweet marshmallow kind of note to it. And I totally agree with the like sarsaparilla type of and, and like root beer type of aroma coming off of this. It's it's a great nose. All right, guys. So what do you say? Let's quantify it here. What would your score be on these? I'm sitting at an eight and a half, Bob. Wow. This is a really, really great nose. And I will say it's hard for me to ever give nose like a nine or above because I haven't tasted it yet. And I'm like a little bit nervous that I've been betrayed and it's it's going to be like a three <laughs> on the taste. So I usually I, it's hard for me to give a very high score on nose, but eight and a half is about the highest I usually go. Yeah, this the nose on this is it's exceptional. I, I would give this a nine on, on the nose. It, it really has some really interesting things happening. And as it sits in the glass, like even more aromas kind of develop. It's it's really nice. Yeah, guys, I, I agree with what you're saying. It's just not really like knocking my socks off. I think it's a really pleasant nose. It's not super complex. Um, it's definitely inoffensive. And I think that's really in line with the old Overholt brand in general. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. I like it, um, but it's just not, you know, it's not exceptional to me. And as you guys go ahead and give this a sip, one thing that I will say is that when we tried the old Granddad 114 a couple months ago, our biggest criticism of the old Granddad brand is that for us, it felt like they were just dumping, you know, grain alcohol on top of the 80 proof. It just got more and more harsh and alcoholic as we went. And so my fear with this is like they're going to do the same thing to Overholt. So, guys, what are you thinking of this as you take a sip? Is it is it just 80 proof with a bunch of alcohol added to it and no more flavor? Or have they kind of found the correct balance as they up the proof here? Man, there is some beautiful nuttiness right as it hits the tip of your tongue. It's it, like you said, Chris, you were totally right. It's not a peanut or like a peanut butter nuttiness. I don't know if it, it'd almost be like a cashew mm-hmm. or a pecan or something like that, but it leads into this like really great sourdough bread kind of in the middle of the palate that I am really, really enjoying. And it, it, for me, it sours a little bit near the end, right as I'm starting to finish. But overall, this is a really nice, nice palette. Yeah, this is, this is like I said, uh, when we were talking about the nose and, and just kind of introducing this, I feel like this is a game changer for rye whiskey. The palette for me is just, again, that root beer comes back like with a force on on the palate you know you kind of get that sarsaparilla that root beer on the nose that's the thing that stands out to me on this like this deep rich root beer slash sarsaparilla kind of flavor there's some there's a little bit of pininess to Mm -hmm. for me on the palate on this um the nuttiness is certainly there um it it has a lot going on even like brad you had mentioned like a, a sourdough I get like that, that sort of, um, I get like a graham cracker out of this. So similar type of like bready type of, of flavor on this. And a really, I feel like this has a really rich kind of oily mouthfeel to it as well. And I think that can be attributed to the, 
uh, non-chill filtering of this product. But the palette on this is just really wonderful to me. And and it certainly does not drink like like I it's a rye whiskey. It has it has some spice to it, but I think this is something that is certainly approachable for someone who prefers bourbon. Yeah. It's definitely in that realm of like a bourbon drinker's rye. Completely agree. Actually, if you had just put this down in front of me and asked me to drink it blind, I'm not entirely sure that I'd be able to identify it as a rye. I'd be really interested to see the mash bill here because I have a feeling that there's a ton of corn in this as well. And it may, it's maybe just barely over the line into being a rye. I don't think Jim Beam has disclosed the mash bill of this. Um, but I do agree with you guys that it drinks way smoother. Uh, it, I expected it to be much, much hotter than this at 114 proof. I would never have been able to tell this was 114 proof uh, if you had just asked me to kind of give some tasting notes on it. It's a very sweet rye. I don't get a lot of like raw rye grain out of this. Most of the notes you guys are getting, I am as well. There's a little bit of heat, but I feel like they just improved upon what the 80 proof did so well. I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10 on the taste. Yeah, Bob, this flavor is really, really nice. It's pleasant. It's not overwhelming. Um, I, I wouldn't call it the most complex whiskey that we've had, but it's really, really good. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10 on the flavor. And I think the the palate on this is is really interesting. And And as you let it sit in the glass, I recommend like pouring this nosing it, drinking it and and letting it kind of sit there and and develop a little bit in the glass because some some more stuff does start to come out. This one I have to I I got to stay with a 9 on on the palate. This is uh, this is a really impressive release to me and and a huge I said it before I feel like this is a huge flex by by Jim Beam. All right, guys, so we're going to hit the lightning round here because we are running way behind on this segment. But in terms of finish, it's not an overly harsh finish. It's a nice warming sensation on the way down. I don't get like an excessive Kentucky hug. It's definitely way milder than the old granddad 114 on the finish. I think it works really, really well for the proof point they're trying to go for. I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the finish. Yeah, Bob, it's a really beautiful finish. Little bit sour for me. I'll give it a seven and a half. The finish on this for me, it's I, I feel like it's a pleasantly long finish. It's not doesn't hang around forever, but it's got some nice flavor to it, some honey, some cinnamon. I get some citrus on it. Um, I will give the finish on this uh, an eight. All right, and that takes us to overall balance. This is nose, taste, and finish put together. I think this is really where this whiskey shines. It's a it's a really solid rye whiskey across the board. Uh, for me, it's like the romantic comedy of whiskeys. Like, you're never really going to get a 10 out of 10 with this whiskey. It's never really meant to blow anybody away, but it does everything so well, and it's so darn charming that I think I'm actually going to give this a 9 out of 10 on the balance. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you, Bob. This is an 8.5 on balance for me. You can't ask for much more. It, it's not, you know, the the craziest whiskey we've ever had, but it just performs so well in every avenue. I, I really, really love this stuff. I, I'm with you guys on this. It's I, I feel like it's it's got a really, a really nice balance to it. Um, I'm, I'm an 8.5 out of 10 on this. All right. And that takes us to overall value. Now, again, we apologize that many of you will not have this available in your state. Typically, we try to keep regional releases to a bonus episode. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm really glad they released this in Ohio because I was able to just walk into my local liquor store and pick it up for $29.99. Guys, I don't think there is another another whiskey on the market at this proof point that even competes price-wise. The only one is Old Granddad, and that's a bourbon. So, I mean, like, you're, you're really just pitting Jim Beam product against Jim Beam product. And if those are the only two products at this proof point and at this price point, I think this one blows Old Granddad 114 out of the water. I'm going to give this an 8.5 out of 10 on value. Bob, I'm going to give it a 9.5 out of 10. I would buy this any day of the week for $30. That is a spectacular value. Now, I will say the only reason I'm not giving it a 10 is because of the limited distribution, which you know hopefully they'll fix in the upcoming months or year or so. Um, but for now, it's a nine and a half. I think this is a spectacular value for what you're getting. I'm I'm going to agree with Brad here, which is shocking listening to um, <laughs> previous film and whiskey podcasts. Brad and I typically don't agree. Sorry, Brad. Hey, that's but all right, Brad, man. Is it on the whiskey or on the movies? Uh, a little bit of both. <laughs> or just everything? Uh, mostly everything. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um I agree. The value on this is is outstanding. I don't think it can get a 10 because a 10 would have to be something just a ridiculous uh, low price. But I would I would go 9.5 out of 10 on on value of this. It's just there's really not much out there that can compete with this on value. See, Chris, we just needed to get you here on the podcast with (laughs) me for you to understand my charm. All right, guys. So that is bringing me out to a 41.5 out of 50. This is this is getting a pretty high score here. Uh, guys, what are you coming out to? 42. Wow. I'm at, uh, if I did my math correct, I believe I'm at a 43.5. Oh, my gosh. This one. And Chris knows whiskey way better than we do. So, guys, take his recommendation on this one. Uh, if you average out Brad and my score, we are coming out to an 83.5 or a 41.75 out of 50. I, I would highly recommend this. Guys, is it is it like the most complex, chewable kind of whiskey that you want to sip on all day? Not so much, but it's just really solid at everything that it does. It, it ticks every box. And for me, that makes it an absolute no-brainer of a recommendation. Yeah, go out and buy it. If you have friends in Ohio that can buy it for you, pay them for the shipping, and it is well worth your time. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. I've I've done that myself. I've reached out to friends to to find this this bottle for me. It's going to be in Pennsylvania as well. I do hear that there may be a national release on this. There has been a label that has been approved that is a national release label. I don't know if that's actually going to come to fruition, but potentially you could see this uh, across the country. Well, if you do, make sure to pick up a bottle. But guys, what do you say we get back into talking about Bohemian Rhapsody?
All right, guys. Well, that was Old Overholt 114. Be looking for that nationwide distribution because, man, oh, man, it is a heck of a rye whiskey. But as we get back into Bohemian Rhapsody, or Bow Rap, as we lovingly like to call it here on the Film and Whiskey podcast, we're just going to be honest with you. We don't like this movie. Uh, it doesn't seem like Chris likes it. Bob and I don't like it. There's a lot of problems with it. But in the end, I I think you know why we don't like it. I just want to hear, let's go through really quickly. What did we actually like about this movie? Was there any like one scene or character or, you know, was there anything, you know, a, a certain shot that you really just loved? What were some things that we liked about this movie? Well, yeah, I think that that definitely Rami Malek's performance is is cer- certainly worth noting. He's the best thing about the movie. He he does it really really well. I actually don't know all the actors that were up for best actor in 2018 or whenever this I think this came out in 2018. I don't know everyone that was up for best actor. I don't know that his performance was worthy of of that award. I, I'd have to see who else was in in the running for that. It was the best thing about this movie, though, by far. Um, he he did it really well, despite despite the uh, the cartoonish uh, teeth he had had to wear. And um, I, I do think that overall, the best scene of the movie obviously to me was the live aid performance but that was more of just like a a, a parroting of what actually occurred uh, you know it, it it was almost like a scene for scene like if you watch those two performances next to each other the actual live performance that actually happened and then what happened in the movie they're really close i i i've watched both and and Rami Malek does an incredible job of you know reenacting Freddie Mercury's performance, which was absolutely incredible. That's by far the best part of the movie. Um, Rami Malek's the best part of the movie, and pretty much the rest of it is not that great. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, and and even with Rami Malek, I don't feel like he got a chance to really shine in a perf- in this performance until probably two thirds to three fourths of the way through the movie. The first time I noticed that the acting was actually picking up was that scene in the back of the limo where he fires their manager and is kind of getting manipulated by, you know, his lover at the time, because that was the first time the movie ever really took a breath and paused for a minute and had a full scene of dialogue. And I thought that that Malik really nailed that moment. And he did the same thing when he revealed to the band that he had AIDS, which was a really contrived and, and not not really well written scene. But I think when they give him a chance to actually get to tap into the emotion of the scene, to display a little bit of emotion on his face, to take a pause, and they're not just cutting away from him every two seconds, he really does shine in this movie. I don't have time to be their victim, their AIDS poster boy, their cautionary tale. No, I decide who I am. I'm going to be what I was born to be. A performer who gives the people what they want. For a long time, I was wondering, like, is Rami Malek really that good of an actor? Like, I, I thought that movie was terrible. And rewatching it now, I realized that I think that he gave a good performance in spite of almost everything else 
on this film set conspiring against him giving a good performance. Yeah, guys, I, I would agree with you. I think Rami Malek has the potential to be good in this movie. And the scene that really showed that to me was when he proposed to Mary. You know, Bob, like you said, when he is in the car with his agent, that's one of the few scenes of the movie that the camera just settles down. The The lighting is muted. You, you let Freddy just be Freddy. And I think the time when he proposes to Mary is a similar scene where he actually gets to talk to her for a minute and profess his love for her. And you get to see him be cute with her. That was one of the few scenes in the movie that I thought was shot well. The lines weren't horrendous. I actually really enjoyed that scene of the film. Um, not much else, but yeah, that, that was a good one for me. All right, so before we leave, Brad, I, I can't go on any further without getting a couple more things about this movie that I just really hated off my chest. Um, but before I launch into a tirade, any burning things in your mind, Chris or Brad, that just really irked you about this movie that, that you got to get off your chest before we stop recording today? For me, it's just that if, if you're going to do a movie about this incredible rock band that ha- has this place in, in history of rock, that there, there needs to be a little bit more of an exploration of how they created what they created. And this movie basically gives you nothing in, in that uh, aspect of, of the band. Well, and I think that to really help you understand why, how they created what they created, you just need to dive more deeply into the characters of the movie. Like, we need to get into the nitty-gritty of all four band members, not just Freddy. And unfortunately, I think this was cast as a Freddie Mercury biopic, and I think it might have been better as a Queen biopic. I completely agree, Brad. Yeah, to dive into the lives of all four band members, you know, maybe with a focus on Freddie and how he experienced the four of them, but you could have done so much more. And honestly, the final thing that I'm going to leave you guys with is that Queen is probably up there is probably my top three or four bands of all time. But this biopic makes me so nervous for the day when they come out with a movie about my favorite band of all time, The Beatles. Mm. Yeah. Like, if they give this kind of treatment to the memory of what happened in the 1960s with John, Paul, George, and Ringo, I will just be... I don't I don't know. I might just quit the podcast. I might just seclude myself for months. <laughs> if they messed up the Beatles, I would be so, so angry. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I want to leave everybody with here today. You know, like I, I know sometimes that I can come across like a really snooty movie snob. And I get that. It's because you're the worst. I am the worst. <laughs> but here's here's the thing with this film in particular, Brad, like. If you're out there and you watched this movie and you enjoyed it, like I want you to to honestly think about what it was about this movie that made you enjoy it. Was it just the fact that you got to see somebody recreate Live Aid? Because if that's the case, why not just go watch the Live Aid performance, the real one on YouTube? It's 20 minutes long and it's fantastic. If it's just hearing these songs again, just turn on a Queen album. The thing for me with this movie, guys, is like the script is one of the worst biopic scripts I've ever, ever seen before to the point where like I was laughing out loud at unintentionally funny stuff. 
And you guys might think I'm terrible for this, but the sequence where Freddy goes to the clinic and gets diagnosed with AIDS, which should be far and away the most dramatic, emotional moment of the movie. Like, he's in this weird space that's designed to look like, look like a church. He gets diagnosed with AIDS, and as he's walking out, there's another AIDS patient who sees him walk by. And, like, the script has that guy not say, like, hey, it's Freddie Mercury. They have him go, ayo. And then Freddie Mercury, without turning around, has a dramatic pause and just goes, ayo. And that's the whole scene. And I was like, what on earth did I just... Like, is that really how you are choosing to portray Freddie Mercury's, you know, solidarity with the victims of this terrible disease in the late 1980s? They just missed every single opportunity to give this movie real emotional weight and heft. The dialogue is terrible. You know, when Freddie Mercury is standing out in the rain for five minutes and going on and on about fruit flies and then tells the guy, fly off, fly off, you little fruit fly. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so, so bad. I have an entire list of quotes that I hated from this movie, and I'm not even going to go into them. But there's just so many moments. It was just, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous film, guys. And and you can love Freddie Mercury and you can love Queen like I do and still admit this is just a poorly made movie. Guys, I don't know if you have as much, as much hate for it as I do, but I think once a movie, you know, not only grosses as much as this film did, but then becomes one of the five to 10 movies in a year that are nominated for best picture you know, 30, 40 years from now, when people are looking back on the year 2018, one of the first places they'll go to find out what were the best movies is what was nominated for Best Picture. And I can't, for the life of me, understand how this movie, more than any other, won so many awards and captured the heart of a nation when we have so many better examples of a musical biopic to choose from. And so, you know, on that note, guys, I guess we should move into our final scores. You know, for me, like I said, the, the Live Aid performance really brought this up a peg. I was I was sitting at about a three for a while, but there was some really great technical mastery in the last 15 minutes of this movie that I think makes it like a three and a half to a four. I'm going to give it a three and a half out of ten. Like, it's just not a well-made movie. There are parts of it that are worthwhile, but overall, I just cannot recommend this film. Bob, sometimes... I look at the score that I gave Eternal Sunshine and I must have been in just the most crotchety mood. Because <laughs> I'm a about two to give out of it, ten. Yeah. I'm about to give this movie a higher score than Eternal Sunshine. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well this, see here's <laughs> now that's what I definitely disagreed with Brad on big time. Bob, I'm with you on the Eternal Eternal Sunshine. That's a good movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am never going to retract my position on that movie, but I will say Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a better movie than Bohemian Rhapsody. So regardless of that, that statement, I'm going to give Bo Rap a two and a half out of ten. It's kind of a bad movie. <laughs> I don't know. Bob, Chris, this movie made a billion dollars. <laughs> How? Uh, honestly, uh, I'm I'm so with you guys on this. This is especially as we as we've talked about it, and as we, you know, you guys break things down. 
this is just a bad, bad movie. It's just, it's really not worth the two hours and 15 minutes of your time. Um, I'm with you. I'm a three and a half on this. And that's basically because of the last 15 to 20 minutes of this movie, which is just parroting the live aid uh, performance that, that queen did. And, 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 a slight nod to Rami Malek making what he could out of what he was given and, and his portrayal of Freddie Mercury. I would like to see him actually play Freddie Mercury in a real movie about the band with a real director. <laughs> in a real movie. <laughs> yeah. In a real movie about the band and with a real director. And um, it, it's just, it, it is really bad. Well, all right. So you guys hear what we think about the movie. Brad and I are coming out to an average of a three out of 10 on this movie. Brad, I have a feeling there are people in our audience knowing what this movie grossed that really loved this movie. And so if if you are like really angry with us and you're going to, you know, light into me for being a snob, I want to hear why. What is it about this film that so captured your imagination? If you listen to this whole episode and you go back and watch it and you find out that maybe your opinions changed and you're in our camp, let us know. You can reach out to us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Uh, if you guys want to give us a phone call, our number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Or you can leave us a voicemail on our webpage, which is anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey. Once again, we want to say thank you so much to our friend Chris Blattner for joining us. Chris, it has been just a delight to have you here. Guys, this has been seriously one of the the funnest podcasts I've I've ever done. I really like how you guys get into a movie and and get into the details and and really make people think about what they're watching. So huge huge fan of the show and thank you so much for for having me on it's such a pleasure to to do this with you guys well next time i promise that we will bring you on for a movie that you love so that we can kind of balance out the emotional weight that you had to carry here today (laughs) cheers all right guys that has been bohemian rhapsody next week we will be back with the movie that you have chosen as your listener special straight out of compton So join us for that next week. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.